I, you know, I wrote that book called Artisan Vegan Cheese that was published in 2012. At the time, I was trying to get back into food. I, I dropped out of it after I sold my company in 2013. I didn't have another food company. I got involved in real estate for a while. Um, and I finally felt like, and I was teaching at Dr. McDougall's, and, uh, but I wasn't doing much else. And I, I kind of got to a point where I felt like I'd sold my soul. Um, and I wasn't doing anything that was adding, adding, any, adding any value to the world because my, you know, the reason that I, I went vegetarian when I was 12 was because I didn't want to kill animals. Um, and so my whole life had been about producing food to entice people to veganism, not shoving it down their throats. Uh, you know, it's not, we're not making foie gras. We're, we're enticing the geese to come eat out of our hands. Hello there, veggie mates. You just heard a short clip from today's amazing guest, Miyoko Shinner. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is the Veg Talk Podcast, a show that brings you conversations from inspiring humans from around the world. Before we get into it, a quick update for you all. Anna is back from her trip to the Bahamas, and I finished up my big road trip to Benson, Arizona, and back to Los Angeles. It was a beautiful drive. I met some amazing people recorded a couple of epic podcasts for you, and even vlogged some of my experience. You can check out the video on Anna's YouTube. The link is in my Instagram bio, or search Anna Alakon on YouTube. It's a really fun video showing what we both got up to during the week apart. Be sure to hit the subscribe button if you'd like to follow our travels. We also left Los Angeles yesterday, currently in San Diego, not far from making our way down to Mexico. Now for today's conversation. We were lucky enough to spend some time at Miyoko's HQ in Petaluma, California a few weeks ago. We had an awesome tour of the facility and got some delicious cheese and dips for the road, which came in handy for our New Year's Eve spread. This episode is jam-packed with awesome stories from Miyoko's journey, from growing up in Japan, to how they are scaling the business today. I hope you enjoy the show and I'll see you all afterwards. Okay, everyone, today we're lucky enough to be at Miyoko's Kitchen in Petaluma, California, and I'm here today with Miyoko Shinner. So thank you so much for my giving up the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Awesome, awesome to meet you. So I suppose we'll get straight into it. Um, I'd love to know just a little bit about, you know, growing up and, you know, I know you were born in Japan, so animal foods... I suppose weren't uh, largely now mm-hmm. they're growing into a more of a Western diet, but historically a very healthy place, mm-hmm. very little disease. Yep. And yeah, I'd love to know well, how I, you grew up okay. with food. Well, I really did grow up in, in I, I don't know, I wouldn't say old Japan, but certainly uh, post-war Japan. Uh, I was born in the 1950s. And so when I grew up, I, you know, to me, food was rice and miso soup and the best treat in the world was a sweet potato man who came rolling his his coal-laden cart down the street saying, Ishiyaki imo. And the kids would all run out in the street. We'd grab our yen and we would just, we would savor those smoky, hot sweet potatoes. And that was like the equivalent of the ice cream truck. So that, you know, it was just so exciting to have that. Um, I remember tasting a juicy strawberry one time my mother got mad at me because I was down at the local fishmongers and 
this beautiful basket of strawberries was produced. I remember taking a strawberry and, and washing it in the fish water. And my mother freaked out. She says, that's dirty water. But it was so good. I remember the first time I had ice cream. Uh, we were in, my mom said we were going on a very, very special trip that day. And she got me all dressed up. And we took a taxi to a restaurant in Tokyo. And we sat there. And I still remember this little table. My mom sat across from me. And the server brought out um, two little glass bowls of, with, that had one scoop of vanilla ice cream in it. And that was all that was on the table. And I remember savoring every morsel. That was my first experience of ice cream. And I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. But no, dairy products were not a prevalent part of the diet. Uh, I moved to this, uh, the United States in 1964. And I remember my mom and I went down to the local. Um, we lived in a little town in uh, Marin County. And there was a local store. It was like Joe's Grocer or something like that. You know, it was just this little corner store. And he had all he had pixie sticks and all this candy. And we didn't have anything like that in Japan. And this was my mother just got into the habit of buying all this stuff. You know, she thought it was like the way to show me love. And so every day I always had a hostess treat in my lunchbox um, and all the other kids didn't and they were all like oh my god let's have lunch with Miyoko we can have her you know we can have her hostess treat um, and the first time I had pizza actually was really when I had um, you know because we, we still weren't eating things like cheese at my house uh, was uh, when I was probably about eight years old and I went to a party where they had pizza and um, I was really excited because I, I was certain that this was like you know my rite of passage into becoming American or something. And I took a bite of that pizza and I practically choked. I thought it was the most disgusting thing I ever had in my life. It was just awful. It was like, it was cloying. It was greasy. Like it was, you know, just dripping down my throat. And I just had to like pretend I loved it. It was like, mmm, very delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it was just disgusting. But you know, I worked really hard at, at learning to love cheese, and eventually I did. Um, and I became quite a cheese aficionado over the years. So, but you know, Japan is—it's really pretty terrible. I did go back to Japan after college, um, and by then I was a true well cheese aficionado, as I mentioned. And it, during college, I used to hold these wine and cheese parties every Friday night in my dorm room. It was that that that's how hardcore I was, and you know, most of my friends, you know, back in the '70s, they were all still eating whatever Swiss and cheddar, and I was just like going to the cheese store and finding all the the best, funkiest, gooeyest, smelliest, smelliest Limburger, and you know, so on, and and I would try to find different cheeses every single week that we would we would sample, and I did that going through Europe for six months. I mean, my my goal was to hit. You know, throughout France, it was like every cheese shop I could find. And just like, oh, my God, it was amazing. Like, it'd be a room twice his size just with, you know, 700 different kinds of cheeses or so. And it was so exciting to just buy them. And I think I went through Europe eating nothing but bread, cheese, and wine. I think that was like my diet. Um, And I went back to Japan in 1980 um, for the first time, you know, to live there for the 80s. I couldn't find any cheese. Back then, Japanese were still not consuming dairy products. So, you know, occasionally they had milk, but for the most part, um, you could get maybe some processed-type cheese at a grocery store, but the only way I could find cheese was by going to this specialty store in the middle of Tokyo called Meiji, which is like an import store. And, And there I was like, oh, my God, when I first found it, I thought I had found, you know, the pot of gold. It was like, 
oh my God, I can finally live again. Because I, you know, I was just living on miso soup and rice. It was getting a little boring. Um, and then a few years later, um, I went vegan. And then it was like, what do I do now? <laughs> so, Very interesting yeah. turn of events. Yeah. So firstly, hearing about the sweet potato cart, that's, yeah. that's such a, yeah. a, an amazing picture you've painted in my head. Were they purple sweet potatoes, by any chance? No, no, no? that's in Okinawa. That's in so Okinawa. these are the, the typical Japanese, what's called satsumaimo, which are, um, they're white. Well, they're actually, they can be purple or white. But anyway, the ones that I grew up with in Tokyo were the white ones, and they're very dense, and they're very, very sweet. I still love them. I mean, I st they're available now at certain natural food stores, like the local one here, and God, I absolutely love them. Don't think I've ever had a... A white sweet potato oh, so God, we'll have to look out for so them and sweet well they, there are different other white sweet potatoes there's a what a hawaiian one also it's got a yellow skin it's not as sweet or dense the the japanese satsuma emo has a, kind of a reddish purple skin and it's white and it's very very dense cool i'm gonna look out okay. for those see if we can cook one up it's a bit difficult in the van yeah. but <laughs> we're living in a van at the moment yeah, so okay. we don't have, we don't have an oven or anything like that um but yeah so you've become really into cheese mm -hmm. i know myself grew up working in a continental deli so i had to learn right about cheeses from different parts of the world and um you know yeah love tasting them and getting to experience that going from that and having wine parties and cheese parties at college to becoming a vegan how did your transition happen what was the, the well I was, I was already vegetarian okay so I went vegetarian when I was 12 of course against you know the wishes of my parents because um, I was going to wither away and die I didn't um, and I I went vegetarian and I think I started eating more cheese then because I read um, at the time there was a nutritionist uh, whose name for some reason has is not in my mind but anyway but she wrote about, you know, you have to eat cheese and dairy. Uh, she really promoted eggs and dairy. So I ate a lot of that. Um, and I thought it was good for me. But in living in Japan, I noticed that over time, my stomach hurt all the time. And so it was really for health reasons. Someone said, I think someone said, you know, maybe you should go vegan. Or um, I, I don't think they knew the word. But they were like, maybe you're allergic to all that dairy you're consuming. I think it was a Japanese person. Um, and so I just kind of gave it up. Um, I was also subscribing to the Vegetarian Times because there was no vegetarian community in Japan. I mean, I didn't know any other vegetarians. I was it, you know? Um, and so um, I think the word vegan, I, I, know, I saw the word vegan in there and this, because Vegetarian Times wasn't a vegan magazine. It was a, a vegetarian magazine, Lacto Ovo. But I think there were, they were beginning to write about veganism and um, wasn't sure how to pronounce it. I wasn't sure if it was vegan or vegan or, you know, there was no internet to check or anything. <laughs> it wasn't in the dictionary. Um, so I kind of just gave it up for a while. I thought, you know, well, maybe I should dry, maybe I should just do this. You know, maybe um, I started reading a little bit about dairy farms and, and, and thought, you know, maybe this just, maybe I should just go all the way. I, I, there wasn't that much information, you know, um, uh, John Robbins hadn't written his book yet. So I didn't have that information, but I began to suspect. And so I gave up dairy. And uh, about two months later, I noticed my stomach didn't hurt anymore. So, you know, I think most Asians are lactose intolerant. And mm. uh, the fact that now the Japanese health ministry is recommending that every child grow up with milk is, is really a, a, sh a crying shame because 
they were just fine for thousands of years and now they're not fine anymore so go figure yeah some of the stats i know we just met up with dr esselstyn mm -hmm. and he he did give us a stat on uh, prostate cancer yeah. in japan just being like insanely low like we're talking less than 20 cases i believe it was something crazy like back yes you not know, decades ago yeah. not anymore mm -hmm. we see the adoption of absolutely something closer to a western diet and these exact diseases that we're seeing here are starting to that's exactly right same thing with okinawa which was one of the five blue zones and but apparently the centenarians are dying off and they're not being replaced by new ones mm. uh, you know because the the people that are growing up now are are eating it's one of the fastest food capitals of um of, of japan i mean because yeah. of you know there's american presence there because of um the military and um there's just a lot of fast food down there now so it's really too too bad yeah it's really sad to yeah. lose something mm -hmm. as precious as that a yes. blue zone yes. you know identified as one of the five yes places in yep. the world mm -hmm. with the longest lived um people the practices just don't get passed down the fast food comes in and that kind of that's takes right. over that's right it's it's sad how quickly that can mm -hmm. happen um and yeah how strong or how fastly adopted it is by right. younger, younger people you know we just yeah. need to make veganism hip uh, i mean that's really the cool the, the key is that everybody want you know it, it used to be the nobility that ate a rich diet and the mm -hmm. nobility i mean the, they were cons all these diseases were considered the diet the this illnesses of the nobility because they were the only ones that got it in japan the the commoners the the peasants only ate brown rice it was only the nobility that could eat polished rice and they came down when they learned how to polish rice the japanese nobility started getting sick they came down with berry berry which is a vitamin b deficiency and it and they didn't know why um, and it turns out it's in the germ and the bran, uh, in the germ that, you know, vitamin B is very, very high in, in, uh, in rice germ, but not, but if you take that out and you eat only white rice, you're going to be depriving yourself of a precious vitamin that they didn't know existed. So, you know, the, the, and then of course they were the only ones that ate predominantly any kind of, any kind of fish in Japan until the black, um, the black ships from, from started coming in from Holland. Um, Japan considered it was largely a vegan society because of its Buddhist origins in fact there was an emperor that uh, had a decree that no animal could be eaten that you, no flesh could be consumed and so the Japanese you know if they ate flesh they did it on the sly and they were predominantly a vegan society and even when the black ships came in it was still considered they, they had by then begun to eat uh, some fowl and fish, but it was considered savage, a savage act to slaughter a four-legged creature. Mm. And just like you'd have to remove your shoes to step into the house. Jap Japanese society was a very highly civilized, refined society. And they considered Westerners very savage because not only did they wear, you know, try to attempt to walk into your house with a pair of shoes on, but, um, you know, they killed four-legged creatures and ate them. And so, it is a violent act. That's right. It's a very, very violent act. It's a savage act. And so we need to make, but the thing is, you know, everybody wanted to be like the nobles. So when they could eat white rice, they did. When they could eat a four-legged creature, they did. And w the Japanese, like all the other, you know, at, at one time as a third world country, they were looking towards the West because they had everything. 
So they were envious. So we need to make the world envious of vegans. We need to make vegans the diet that everybody wants to adopt because it's so sexy and hip and cool. And we're doing that here. That's exactly right. At this yeah. very location. So I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, after becoming a vegan, you are at heart, you're an entrepreneur. You are a driven, really driven person. Um, and you've got this health-minded message and this has been with you for a long time yeah. i'd love to learn a little bit about your journey to miyoko's sure you know i i uh well when i went vegeta when i went vegan i this i i've told the story before so if some of you listeners have heard it sorry but <laughs> uh i had this friend uh, he was older he was a businessman and uh he had, he was a writer by night and business and by day. And we used to go out, you know, drinking. We were in some cheap dive one night talking about, and we used to re read books on philosophy and discuss them. That's what we used, that we, we were that kind of friends. We'd read a book and then we'd go and talk about it. And so, but that night I was like, I didn't know what I was gonna, I wasn't concerned about the meaning of life. I wanted to know what the meaning of my life was. And I was just, you know, bemoaning that I hadn't figured out what I was gonna do with the rest of my life yet. Of course I was 24 or something. Um, and he said, well, you can do anything you want. You're smart, you're, you know, you're talented, do whatever you want, just don't go into business. So about two weeks later, that's exactly what I did. And I opened up a little vegan bakery. Um, it was a, a not, not, it wasn't, there was no storefront. It was a wholesale bakery. And I was making pound cakes and I delivered them by, uh, by subway train in a big backpack. So I had like 70 pound cakes, so 70 pounds in my in a backpack and I deliver them all over Tokyo and that's kind of that was my very first business and it's just been you know things like that ever since uh, that morphed into uh, consulting for various uh, uh, restaurant companies and doing cooking demos all over Japan to um, writing my first cookbook uh, first it was I wrote it in Japanese and then I translated it into English and had it published which was the, the now and Zen Epicure which was published in 1990 opened up a restaurant in, in, in San Francisco, a bakery in San Francisco, a restaurant that morphed into a natural food company in the 90s, sold that in 2003, uh, wrote four more cookbooks, um, you know, taught in the McDougal program for 10 years. So I've been in food for a very, very long time. You know, I'm not a spring chicken. I didn't just like pop up yesterday and just like, I have this great idea. <laughs> I'm going to open a vegan cheese company. I didn't do that. So, um, but I did write a book on vegan cheese because I sort of got to a point where I was like, okay, it's been long enough. It's been 30 years without vegan cheese or without cheese. I'm going to figure out before I, you know, kick off this planet somehow, um, I'm going to try to figure out how to do this. So I made it kind of my goal, you know, in the 2000s to figure out how to make it. So that's often and the case with, yeah. with entrepreneurs, you know, mm -hmm. Miyoko's starts to grow and you're right. the face of Miyoko's kitchen. Exactly. There was yeah. a lot of hard work before. That's exactly right. Yeah. Before this came to be. Yeah. Uh, and before we got to know you. So cheese is often a thing. Whether you're not, you know, whether you're a meat eater, whether you're um, vegetarian, it's the, the one thing that people often struggle to give up. We actually... The, the previous owner of our van, he, he started to follow us. We haven't met in person yet, but he, he knows we're vegan and, and we live that, that lifestyle and he's interested. And he reached out to us the other day and said, 
you know, have you got any resources for me that I can just start cooking? He's like, I'm kind of getting sick of like hummus and carrots. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so we were like, all right, here's some resources for what we used in the beginning for cooking food. Um, and then he said, I, I could never give up cheese. He's like, I'm from Europe. And, you know, I feel like the, the culture thing is interesting because we, we hear it everywhere. It doesn't matter where you're from. It's like, oh, but I'm from here. Anyway, it always leads back to meat and cheese, basically. And he's like, I'm from Europe and I'm never going to give up cheese. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, try out some of these recipes. Don't worry so much about the cheese. But when you became vegan and you were left with early vegan cheeses. Well, there weren't any. There weren't any? No. Well, first of all, I was living in Japan. I mean, it was hard enough to find dairy cheese. Um, But there was absolutely no uh, plant-based cheese at that time at all. Um, and, and that was really what I was going to miss the most, you know? And so what I figured out was that it wasn't even so much the cheese, but it's the satisfaction that cheese provides. So it's something that's rich, something that's unctuous, something that's creamy. And so I started playing around with both tofu and cashews way back in the 1980s. I don't know how, I mean, the tofu part was obvious because I was living in Japan. Um, I don't know how I stumbled on cashews because there weren't really any books written about vegan foods at the time. Um, but by, you know, by the time I opened my restaurant in the early '90s, we were we had you know cashew cream was like all over the place, all over our recipes. Um, but I figured out somehow that I could do that, um, and um, so I started making lots of rich dishes that had cashews or pureed tofu in it. So whether it was a cheesecake made out of tofu and cashews. Um, or, um, you know, or some kind of mousse. I would make mousse a lot, um, whether it was savory and uh, sweet. Um, very French-inspired cuisine. I, I literally worked my way through um, Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child and tried to replicate every dish. Uh, n- not like Julia and Julia, but, you know, I tried to do a, a vegetarian <laughs> version of it. I'd already begun doing, like, walk, walking through the book, as a vegetarian, and then I tried to replicate many of those dishes as a vegan. Um, So, you know, I would substitute cashew cream for heavy cream, and so I learned a lot about a lot of those properties very early on, Um, and and there just weren't any resources. Um, When I wrote the book, The the Now and Zen Epicure, um, I think it was published within two months of another book by Ron Pekarsky called Friendly Foods, and I think our two books were probably the first I don't, I don't know if I'd call it haute cuisine, but more European style, you know, um, white dining, you know, white tablecloth dining. Fine dining. Fine dining yep. cookbooks that uh, on veganism that um, had hit the marketplace. Because prior to that, they were always, you know, lentil loaf 12 ways or something. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So you kind of like formed your own little lab almost. Yes. Working yeah. away, different combinations. Yeah, so instead of Friday night uh, wine and cheese parties, I started hosting fi- f- uh, Friday night 12-course dinner parties. And I made it my goal every Friday to make a, a tasting menu of about 12 different courses. And I just started inviting people, uh, various people. And I did this every Friday night. And this... And I met, and first it started out with my friends, and then someone knew someone, and then they knew somebody else. And next thing you knew, there were people coming from restaurants, you know, who owned restaurants and natural food companies and so on. And 
I started working in the field in Japan, in a, in a very, very young field in Japan. Amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, yeah, we, we were in Ithaca and we had an experience like this where we went to a, a place. It was just a home and they cooked for a group of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amazing food, all vegan, and it, it helps people that don't know each other to sit around a table and experience food with a really good social setting, um, which I think is what really food does. It brings people together. Um, that's the purpose of food. I mean, that's yeah. really what separates man from animals. I mean, you know, I, I know from having a farmed animal sanctuary that animals don't say, hey, let me grab some, uh, some grass over here and you go get the leaves over there and we'll make a big salad. They just don't do that. It's humans that, that forage together and come together and share food. Mm -hmm. And that's what's created culture. Yeah, you know, really. Food sharing. Food is all about sharing. It's not about eating individually. And and we're kind of going in that direction now where people eat in front of their computers. I know I'm guilty of that. Um, you know, so although we have a big dining table here, you've probably seen that um, to encourage sharing. <laughs> but I think some of us are so busy, we're still shoveling food, at, you know, in front of our screens. That is 100 um, yes. percent true. That's maybe yeah. something culturally yes. we need to we not need, go that's down exactly that right. Yeah. We, yes. Yeah. Um, so. How does Miyoko's kitchen come about then? So I moving from Japan to so the I came US? back to the U.S. in the '90s, and then um, I, you know, I wrote that book called Artisan Vegan Cheese that was published in 2012. At the time, I was trying to get back into food. I I had dropped out of it after I sold my company in 2013. I didn't have another food company. I got involved in real estate for a while. Um, and I finally felt like, and I was teaching at Dr. McDougall's and, uh, but I wasn't doing much else. And I was, I kind of got to a point where I felt like I'd sold my soul. Um, and I wasn't doing anything that was adding, adding any, adding any value to the world because my, you know, the reason that I, I went vegetarian when I was 12 was because I didn't want to kill animals. Um, and so my whole life had been about producing food to entice people to veganism not shoving it down their throats uh you know it's not we're not making foie gras we're, we're enticing the geese to come eat out of our hands and that had always been my goal was to make food so delicious that people would say wow i can't believe this is vegan you know if i could eat this way i might just go vegan and just planting those little seeds and that's that's what i'd always tried to do so I wrote this book, Artisan Vegan Cheese, and at the time I thought, okay, no one's going to buy this. Who cares? You know, and no one. And it became kind of a cult classic. Did very well, and people just kept saying, "Why don't you just start a cheese company?" You know, I'd rather just buy your cheese. So eventually, I did. Because the cheese, I suppose, is the way you mm -hmm. started to make it. It's not just you know blending some cashews together and putting it in the fridge for a few hours. It's really well thought out using practices from yeah. from the dairy cheese that's right but you know it's not just cashews i mean yes so i mean my book uh uses all kinds of substrates besides cashews cashews are the most neutral they're the easiest to work with but there's all kinds of other nuts um and then there's you know you can also use uh, legumes or or grains as well and next year in 2019 uh, we are going to be introducing our, a new line of cheeses that will be based on legumes, grains, seeds, and potatoes. So we're actually we're going to have some cashew-free cheeses, uh, mostly legumes and and uh, and potatoes, 
um, and they'll still be borrowing. It'll still be a combination of traditional cheesemaking uh, techniques combined with just innovative food scientists, uh, food science. So is that what yeah. separates Miyoko's brand from any other vegan cheeses on the market? Is yeah. So there, there's two kinds of vegan cheese on the market. There's the kind uh, that are more just kind of um, you know. I don't want to say a lab approach, but it's just a con- it's oil and starch. A lot of the the process, the slices and shreds, or if you read the ingredients, it's just oil and starch, and that's fine. It's a processed cheese alternative, and there's no nutritive value. Um, but you know, it if it and, and it season, it's not it's not seasoned, not the word. Um, it's not cultured or anything. It just has uh, natural flavors in it to create the flavor profile. And, you know, and that serves a purpose for some people. And then there's the whole foods approach, which is taking, there's lots of nut cheese companies now that are taking whole nuts, adding cultures to them, um, and then trying to make them more like cheese. Um, I think we're a little bit beyond um, both of those because we are always going to be using whole foods. We're not ever going to be a company that only combines oils, starches, and flavors them with natural flavors. So, for example, we have a cheddar cheese right now that we're working on that it has amazing texture, um, like like cheddar cheese. Um, one of our food scientists, just brilliant, um, came up with this. But um, it's a combination of all kinds of legumes and, and seeds. And it's cultured, and there's food science involved in it. Um, and all the flavor comes from culturing and enzymes and the, the, the marriage of all of those ingredients to create like a cheddar-y profile. It's really quite amazing. Um, so that's the direction we want to go, and we're going to be, we're always going to remain organic, um, using whole food ingredients and marrying food science with um, old world techniques. Really To make cool. real food. It's yeah. really, really cool. I was just um, saying to Susie, I think the first time we tried your cheese, we were out in Joshua Tree, and there was this little health food store just outside the National Park, and we were really surprised at how many options they had, and we saw... We already knew about Miyoko's. I just don't think we were living in Boston, and I don't think it was available yet, or we didn't know where to get. Mm-hmm. We didn't know where to get it. Well, it's in ten thousand stores across the country now, so it's certainly in Boston now. But it's yeah, definitely it might in not Boston. have been. Yeah, I yeah. know. Yeah, in in Somerville, mm-hmm. it's definitely. Yeah. I know one place where it definitely is. But yeah, we tried it, and I think it was the double cream chive, mm-hmm. and we just ate the whole thing in like one sitting because we'd never experienced anything like that on the vegan side before so it was um it was a cool kind of surprise i suppose to see something yeah so delicious and then to learn about the background Mm -hmm. of of how it's made it just makes the story Mm -hmm. even more interesting from going from you know a startup company and really you know now having food scientists and you know, a place where you can package and you've got like a plant here now. What's it been like seeing Miyoko's grow and and what have been some of the challenges or some of the successes um, that you've had along the way? Well, it, it's been a very exciting journey with lots of ups and downs, as you can imagine. Um, you know, we did start out very, very small. Uh, there were just four of us in the very beginning. Now we have about 100 employees and a big plant and uh you know we've got food scientists and quality assurance people and a marketing team and you know it just goes on and on uh finance team etc um it's it's something that 
I don't think I navigated very well initially. You know, I wasn't really sure how we were going to grow it. Um, and w- it was just a guessing game. Like there was really no really clear roadmap on where we wanted to go. I think a lot of uh, startups today have a very good roadmap. They've planned it out well. They've raised a lot of money, even bef- pre-revenue before they even launch. And we didn't do that. We just kind of launched and then we started raising money. It was kind of crazy. And I, I, I'm honestly in, you know, to my, to today, just in disbelief that the people that invested in me in the very beginning even did so because I don't think we presented a very clear roadmap at all, but they still did. Um, and I have to thank them for that. And, um, you know, we just did another internal um, round and it, you know, just the confidence that all of our investors have in us still is, is just fantastic. And they've been extremely supportive, uh, providing leadership and guidance to us and helped us, uh, you know, really grow this company. Um, so it, it, I think the, the biggest challenge has been operations um, because uh, going from a small 40, making 40 pound batches, that was how we started, um, to a continuous process where we're making, um, you know, we're making uh, the smallest batch size is about uh, 1,000 kilograms or 2,200 pounds. Um, and we make multiple of those per day, and we're moving towards a continuous process. So we're making thousands and thousands of cases of product a day. Um, is, you know, has been a challenge in figuring out how do we do this. I mean, there, scaling is a whole other issue. I mean, it's a whole other, um, f- especially scaling a product like this that has never been scaled before because there was no process engineer who said, this is how you do it. You buy this equipment and you pipe it this way. No one knew how to do it really. There's no book. There's no book. No. There's, there's no book that's been written and we had to figure it out. Um, and it's been trial and error. And there were some things that didn't work out. We built this plant, you know, spent millions of dollars in this plant to find that a certain line didn't work, that it destroyed our product. And then we had, it was like, oh my God, we got to ship, you know, in two weeks, what are we going to do? And we've had to, you know, we've had to short distributors and, and uh, tell them, you know, pl- beg with them, please stick with us. You know, we're figuring it out. And, and they have stuck with us because the performance of the product, uh, the uniqueness of it. And, you know, I think ultimately they do believe that we're going to figure it out. So we've had some big challenges in, in, um, just figuring out how to scale on an industrial basis. Um, but for the most part, we have. Uh, we're getting better. And I do believe that you know we're at a point now where um, we can actually go to co-packers. A lot of companies don't have manufacturing. They go to a co-packer to have, um, you know, mo- many, many food companies are just sales and marketing companies. And they have co-packers make all the products. Um, so, but we couldn't do that. We didn't have that option because we didn't know how to do it ourselves and no co-packer was going to know how to do it. I think we're finally at a point where we figured out certain products really, really, we've dialed it in and now we can go into a, a larger facility and say, can you do this for us and make 10 times what we're able to make? Cool. Well, I'm stoked to hear that that's happening because yeah. we all need more Miyoko's cheese in our life, I think. It's, it's just an awesome product. Just to round it out, I think we've got a couple of minutes left. I know you've got a sanctuary. Yes. 
Would you like to give us a little oh, bit yeah. of background on the sanctuary? Because it's really cool. Oh, so, yeah, it's not only really cool, it's the only thing that gives me any sanity. So <laughs> it's called ranchocompasion.org. Uh, Rancho Compasión is like compassion with just one S. And the website is ranchocompasión.org. Um, so please check it out. It's about 25 minutes from Petaluma in the little sleepy town of Nicasio, which is actually pronounced Nicasio. Uh, because it's named after um, a Native American. Um, so um, I, it, when the first time I heard the word Nikasho, I thought, you guys must be hicks, but actually <laughs> that's, not, that's not the case. So anyway, it's a, a beautiful sanctuary that we started three years ago, my husband and I did, um, by accident, sort of uh, by accident on purpose or whatever. The uh, we, we bought this property, and next thing you know, a couple of goats came from a sanctuary that said, can you please take them? And then we did, and then... Somebody else wanted us to take some pigs, and then someone else wanted to take us. Anyway, it just went on and on. So now we have about 70 animals. We've got goats and pigs and chickens and ducks and geese and sheep and cows and donkeys. And uh, did I say goats? Um, yeah. Anyway, so it's, it's a lovely place. Um, you can visit. We have visitation on the second Saturday of each month. Um, we're still pretty much volunteer run. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we're trying to build an educational program to bring school kids out there. Um, I have ducks and chickens that were hatched in classrooms. And uh, because we live in ag land, my kids went to dairy farms on school field trips. And, of course, they asked the teachers or they asked the farmers, oh, why are the baby calves separated, um, you know, pretending that they didn't know. But anyway, um, so what we w we're trying to do is encourage schools to come out and, and visit a sanctuary instead and connect with animals living an idyllic lives, living lives according to their, their wishes and needs. And, and we've started doing that. Uh, in fact, we have a school that's going to be doing a volunteer project every single day in, at, the in, at the end of February, um, working with the animals and, and you know shoveling manure. But for me... Um, I get to start my day, um, and I say I get to because I feel this is a special privilege, uh, by going out in the fresh air, shoveling manure, saying hello to the animals, feeding them, um, cleaning up the stalls. And I do this every day, and I, you know, takes about an hour and a half, and then I go inside, and my, my, cup, my clothes and I were covered, I'm covered in straw and, and goat smell. It's pretty disgusting, <laughs> um, but I love it, and... It, it just uh, you know gives brings sanity to my day when I when I don't do it uh, because I have to, to travel or go somewhere and uh, I have to have a volunteer do it I feel like there's a big chunk that you know I don't know my light my day didn't get started right um, so it's a really precious time and it's just wonderful to see these animals that were taken out of the food system um, living lives according to their wishes um, so please check it out ranchocompasion.org absolutely guys it's sanctuaries are an amazing place i can definitely second that um really cool to see animals just you know as you said yeah. as they want to be it, it's a it's a cool time to to go and meet them and experience that and it, for people that maybe aren't vegan right now they are able to maybe make, make that, that connection. connection absolutely so that brings us to the end but i really do thank you for the time i know you're an extremely busy woman so yeah, really big thanks to you, Miyoko, and thanks for sharing your story. It was really cool to hear, yeah, where you've come from and, and how you've got to, uh, to, to this stage of, of the journey. Well, and thank you for visiting. Yeah, the continue. pleasure was all mine. Yeah, and have some lunch if you haven't already. Yeah, okay. we'll definitely go to the okay. table. Thank right, you great. very much, Miyoko. Thank you.
Hello again, Veggie Mates. So what did you think of today's show? It was an awesome experience for us. A big thank you to the team at Neocos for having us and showing us around the facility in Petaluma. I loved her storytelling. It felt like I was being transported to the time and place, particularly the one of the sweet potato cart back in Japan. Her compassion for animals is incredible. It not only shows through the products they make at Miyoko's, but also the work she puts in each day to care for the animals at their sanctuary. Go and check it out online at Rancho Compassion. And be sure to visit Miyoko's online at Miyoko's Creamery on Instagram and Miyoko's.com. If you enjoyed today's show and would like to help share this episode, please do so by sharing the link via social media or by sharing my post on Instagram. If you have any more time, all reviews and ratings are very much appreciated and only take a minute or two. Thanks for your support so far. It's been an amazing journey. I've made new friends and been inspired by so many compassionate individuals crushing it in their field. I'll see all you guys next week for another episode of Veg Talk.